Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Syria's ceasefire doesn't work. We'll walk through several regions of concern in Syria. Activists want sanctions on Burma for the genocide of the Rohingya. We'll ask the Burma Action Task Force about Rohingya Advocacy Day. And the One Earth Film Festival is the Midwest's premier environmental film fest. We'll find out about a documentary on the movement to stop plastic straws. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. About the only place in the world where a ceasefire doesn't mean ceasefire is Syria. We're going to look into the miasma of Syria now with Juan Cole. He's professor of history at the University of Michigan. He's the author of a number of books, including The New Arabs, How the Millennial Generation is Changing the Middle East. Thanks for joining us, Juan Cole. Thanks for having me, Jerome. Juan, I wonder if we could just walk around the different regions here in Syria and try to figure out what's going on. Um, people have been seeing so many deaths here in the East Ghouta area, uh, this ceasefire that is supposed to help people be a humanitarian ceasefire doesn't work because that's the way ceasefires seem to go in Syria. What do you see when you're looking at this? Well, there are a few pockets of continued rebel resistance to the Damascus government. Uh, Idlib in the north uh, is one. It's a province that's still controlled uh, by rebels against the government. And uh, near to Damascus, a kind of suburb of the city of some three or 400,000 people, is also controlled by uh, rebel guerrilla forces. And the center of the city does take uh, occasional mortar fire from uh, that enclave. Now that ISIL has largely been rolled up, uh, now that the government has reasserted itself in most of the country, it appears that they're making a push finally simply to defeat the rebels in that enclave. And the MO there is the same as it's been in all other sieges, uh, just kind of bomb a lot of civilian casualties, occasionally try to let some people out and then take over when the siege is over. Yeah, the East Ghouta uh, situation is particularly tragic because it is largely surrounded by the regime forces. And so unlike in East Aleppo or some other situations where people were able simply to flee uh, and vote with their feet, it's not easy to get out of East Ghouta. There's also reports of rebels, you know, they don't want their cover to disappear on them, of rebels not letting people leave, of people being too poor to leave or not wanting to leave family members behind. It's a very bad situation, among the worst we've seen in the many bad situations in Syria. And the regime, yes, is pursuing uh, tactics of total war. It's intensively bombing the enclave without reckless disregard for civilian life. And it's being supported in this by the Russian Aerospace Forces. 
The United Nations has looked particularly impotent in this situation. Uh, they've been unable to do anything. Their ceasefires are meaningless. Uh, Russia's vetoing anything at once at the Security Council. Yeah, well, the Security Council did pass a very broad and general resolution, which everybody understands is aimed at the East Ghouta situation in particular. And many United Nations officials uh, and ambassadors have cautioned Syria and Russia that, uh, you know, they're engaged in war crimes. Uh, but aside from asking pretty please, won't they, you know, lighten it up? The UN doesn't really have teeth. And of course, on the ground in that part of, of Syria, now Russia and the regime are supreme. I'm talking with Juan Cole, and we're discussing the situation in Syria, and Juan Cole's professor of history at the University of Michigan. Let's jump over to uh, the situation uh, with the Kurdish YPG, and uh, the United States has been backing this force to fight ISIS for a while. The U.S. isn't leaving the border area with Turkey, and neither is the YPG, and you know, Turkey is reinforcing troops that are being sent in to fight them. And the YPG seems to be cutting a deal with the Assad government. Uh, how do you assess what's going on here? Right. So the, the United States couldn't find a ground force to take on ISIL in the region, except for the leftist uh, Kurds of the YPG. And so it embedded special operations forces with those Kurds, uh, and they did succeed in taking Raqqa, the capital of the ISIL so-called caliphate, and, and really have rolled up mostly the ISIL terrorist organization. The cost of that was that Turkey is paranoid about Kurdish power. It fears Kurdish secessionism inside Turkey. It fears very much that the rise of an armed and powerful Syrian Kurdish force on its borders would help secessionism. And so it invaded the one Kurdish enclave in northern Syria, which is not, you know, allied with the United States directly. It doesn't have U.S. troops embedded with it in Afrin. Now, the day after for defeating ISIS was always going to be something of a quandary. There was no prescription about what to do here. But the U.S. is now on the same side with the Assad government in kind of working with uh, the Kurdish forces there, and we're against our NATO ally Turkey. It's a really strange situation. Uh, yes, the United States is supporting the Kurds against Turkey. Uh, Turkey is a NATO ally. The regime in Damascus does not want Turkey invading its territory uh, and is willing to make up with the Kurds. So the U.S. is uh, de facto uh, swinging around with regard to the Kurdish situation, to alliance with uh, Syria. In your blog, Informed Comment, you've been writing about what the U.S. troops' ultimate goal is in sticking around in this area. And the U.S. shows no signs of, of wanting to get out. It's with these 2,000 troops. What is the ultimate goal for the U.S.? Well, I think it's multiple. Uh, the U.S. military does not want ISIL coming back. And they want to arm the Kurds and train them so as to prevent that. I think there may also be an aspiration somehow to block uh, Iran's access to Syria, although I, I, I don't think that that's plausible. But that seems to be, you know, in the air as, as a possible uh, motive 
for the U.S. staying. But Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has more or less announced that the U.S. is in northeast Syria amongst the Kurds in the long term. And this is not viewed by anybody as legal in, under international law. We are way on the outside of being invited into Syria. Well, the funny thing about international law is that there aren't very many tribunals where it can be adjudicated. So the fact is that the United Nations Charter allows a country to engage in self-defense. ISIL established a statelet from which it did attack the United States and, and it attacked France and Belgium. And so France and the United States, other NATO powers, have felt it legal to intervene to roll up ISIL as a matter of self-defense. That's the argument that uh, Washington would make to you. And actually, there isn't much of anybody to tell them they're wrong, uh, except the UN Security Council, on which they sit and have a veto. Well, is there a real danger for the U.S. if it just sits there? Because it seems like everybody who surrounds them does not want them there. That's right. The big danger for the United States is becoming isolated. You know, it's unclear exactly how many U.S. troops are embedded amongst the leftist Kurds, maybe a couple thousand. But uh, they have a hostile Turkey to their north. They have ISIL still in the area. They have the Syrian and Russian government and apparently <laughs> Russian mercenaries to their west and then Shiite Iraqi militias to their east. So the possibility of a 1983 Beirut-style uh, marine barracks bombing uh, you know, looms large. It's, it's entirely possible that those troops will be targeted by somebody talking with Juan Cole, and we're discussing the situation in Syria, and Juan Cole's professor of history at the University of Michigan. All right, so how bad is the danger of this thing escalating in this region? Because, you know, the Beirut bombing situation sounds like, you know, a massive crisis, and there seems to be ways that this thing can get completely out of hand with uh, U.S. proxies killing Russians and things like that. It's um, on the knife's edge. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, we already saw last week a, a very murky situation in which Russian mercenaries allied with the Syrian regime made a move on territory controlled by the YPG and the U.S. troops. I wanted to swing over to the uh, situation with Israel now. Israel had an F-16 downed. They're saying that their F-16 was a pilot error situation. But they're really uptight about Iran's influence in Syria and don't want a permanent Iranian block in there. They don't want help for Hezbollah. How big of an issue is this when it comes to something flaring up? Uh, they seem quite determined. Sure. Well, that Iran versus Israel situation is now largely a Russian problem. Uh, the Russians have to decide whether they're going to take on Israel and support Iran in its activities in Syria and its arming of Hezbollah, or whether they're going to tell the Iranians and Hezbollah, you're on your own against the Israelis. The main Russian concern seems so far is that Russian troops and facilities should not be endangered by anything Israel does in Syria. But it's hard to see how that can be disentangled from Iranian interests. Is the whole thing in Syria a Russian problem now? Are they the ones who've got to adjudicate pretty much all the stuff we've been talking about? They've got to use their leverage on Iranians, on Assad, and uh, they're cleaning up at the edges now? 
Uh, yes, Syria is now a Russian sphere of influence. Anything that happens on the margins of Syria, whether it's Afrin or the YPG or East Ghouta, that's all something that Russia could intervene in if it wants to. And so the only reason these things are happening, like the Afrin campaign of the Turks, is that the Russians decided to sit that one out. But where they don't want to sit it out, then they're in control. All right. What can the U.S. and Israel do here about that if they want to? If their goal is to kick back Iranian influence in Syria, how hard can they make it for the Russians? I think they're helpless. I think the Russians are in the catbird seat in Syria. And there's nothing much that Israel, the United States can do. And I think uh, we're going to have a new prime minister in Israel. And whoever that is, is likely going to have to have Russia mediate between Israel and Iran and Hezbollah. All right. So how long is this going to take to sort out? I mean, these things seem so inflamed and uh, it could take years. Yeah, it could be years before this thing in Syria uh, settles down. But the fact is that from 2015 until now, since the Russians began interfering, every year the regime has held more territory. And once it holds the territory, you don't hear much more about it. So if the Russians are willing to continue to invest, the regime seems to be able to establish a fragile hegemony over much of Syria now. Juan Cole is professor of history at the University of Michigan. He publishes the Informed Comment blog, and you can read his book, The New Arabs, How the Millennial Generation is Changing the Middle East. Thanks a lot for joining us, Juan, and take care. Uh, Thank you, Jerome. Activists want sanctions for Burma on the genocide of the Rohingya will ask the Burma Action Task Force about Rohingya Advocacy Day after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's been six months since 90% of Burma's Rohingya community were forced from their country. The Burma Action Task Force wants uh, the U.S. to impose sanctions on Burma, and tomorrow is their Rohingya Advocacy Day. Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid is the chairman of the Burma Task Force USA. He joins us now, and thanks for joining us, Malik. Thanks. Good to talk with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, um, Malik, explain what your organization is, the Burma Task Force. What's, what is this? Burma Task Force is a coalition of 18 uh, organizations, national and regional. From Chicago, we have Council of Islamic Organizations, Secretary of Chicago. 
It is hosted at Sound Vision, and uh, what we do is we educate people about the genocide which Rohingyas are facing currently and trying to see if more people can speak up and it could be stopped somehow. And you're the president of Sound Vision, which is known as the parent company of Radio Islam here in this region. And uh, now you've decided to have a Rohingya Advocacy Day and go to Washington and talk to lawmakers. Um, What do you want them to do? Well, you know, U.S. has the honor of having the only elected body of people anywhere in the world which has passed two resolutions in support of Rohingya security and citizenship. Um, these are bipartisan resolutions, and now they are considering two bills. Resolutions does not have the force of law. But now Senate is considering a bill 2060, and House is considering a similar bill 4223. What it does, it it asks the State Department to determine that it's genocide. It commits funds for Rohingyas uh, who are living in a terrible conditions in Bangladesh. It also puts ban on. Uh, you know, uh, two uh, military commanders who are very proudly committing this genocide and saying nothing is happening there while they stop United Nations from coming in. So Bill uh, asked for them to allow UN investigation to come in. What kind of chance does the do these bills have in the House and the Senate? Uh, You mentioned there's been bipartisan uh, action on this, does that mean these have a have a shot? Well, it has good opportunity because it's bipartisan. Actually, my, uh, the Senate bill was introduced by Senator McCain. Um, so, so it has good chance. But as you know, there are more than 5,000 bills and resolution introduced in the Congress every year, and only 4 or 5% pass. So unless uh, people realize uh, that, you know, never again uh, means never again, and the whole United Nations and Human Rights Charter, all these things came into being after the tragedies of the World War. And uh, there is a responsibility to act. And these bills translate the earlier resolutions into some action. So I think if people are uh, conscious all around the world uh, push for uh, some action to stop this genocide, I mean, you know, there is no genocide in the world which has been as documented through satellite after documentation, after the fact is different, but live documentation, live documentation of villages before and after they were destroyed. Not one or two, almost all of those. Actually, the Burmese military just day before yesterday, the document were leaked out that 90% of all Rohingya people who are indigenous people living in their ancestral land has been thrown out. They don't say that they threw them out, but they say 90% of them are no longer there. And now, before and after images of the Burmese government using bulldozers to actually destroy all the evidence of burned houses. So it just flattened earth. No evidence left whatsoever. And this was on, uh, you could see this on NPR's website. This is everywhere. 
Yes, it is on NPR website. One can Google it before and after pictures of what happened in Rohingya. So this, I think, is the most documented genocide as it is happening well, in ha- front of the whole world. Do, do you have a shot of getting things out of committee? Bills have to go out of committee and go on to the greater uh, senator or house. Does Do the bills that you're advocating for, or do they have a shot? Well, a good thing is the Senate bill 2060 is already uh, marked up by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Now all senators need to do is call for a vote, and I hope uh, Senator McConnell uh, will do that. And this is what uh, there are going to be more than 150 people in Washington, D.C., and throughout the country, people of faith and interfaith are calling there will be 10 Rohingya leaders with their own personal stories who will be here. So hopefully uh, House bill will also come out of the committee because uh, House uh, Foreign Relations Committee Chair uh, Ed Royce has the wisdom and the foresight that before the Burmese military started attacking in last August, he said, don't attack. Do you have, I imagine these Rohingya that are coming with you have a particularly persuasive case to make. Um, who are they? What, what, what kind of things do they have to say? Well, one of them actually is, you know, Rohingya people were indigenous people of that land. They were always citizen. They always voted. They always elected their representative. So one of the person coming is actually the last serving member of the parliament from Burma, a Rohingya person. He served until 2016. Now he's exiled in the U.S. He will be there. He's member of the parliamentarian of Southeast Asia <laughs> board also. Uh, but now he's struggling here. Uh, there are uh, there are people coming from Oregon, uh, New Hampshire, uh, a Rohingya leader coming from uh, uh, Chicago, a Rohingya leader, two Rohingya leaders coming from uh, uh, Wisconsin. These people have a story of their own. One person has his mother sitting in those camps. Uh, he came out earlier, was supporting the family, now family thrown out of uh, Burma uh, by the Burmese military, and she's sitting in the camps. So each one of them have a personal story. So actually our format is when we these delegations go around meeting congresspersons and senators, after introduction, first thing will be a Rohingya leader will share their story, where their people are. I'm talking with Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid. He's the chairman of the Burman, Burma Task Force, and their Rohingya Advocacy Day is tomorrow. They're going to Washington, D.C. and lobbying for uh, these sanctions bills that we've been talking about. I, I do want to take a second and discuss what's been going on with uh, the Rohingya camps that are in Bangladesh. Uh, there are some kind of remarkable uh, developments there. Uh, could you explain what's going on? Well, uh, there are two, three things which are very critical to know. That unlike any place in the world where refugees are, you see United Nations, uh, you know, those white, gray tents and proper organization. Here, none of that. These people actually on different mountains and all, which was, you know, habitat for elephants, 
they have cut the bamboos from there and stick four bamboos and put a plastic plastic is provided by different not for profit entities and what not in a very terrible situation and uh, when i was visiting them uh, you know you can uh, you know you have small path to walk if you step left or right you touch somebody's hut home and in a 10 by 10 type of a size approximately you will have seven eight ten people there you cannot stand straight so it's a horrible situation these people are living but now burma and bangladesh forced by their neighboring countries china and india who are behind burma protecting burma they are forcing bangladesh to send these people back although bangladesh prime minister says they should not be sent back without security and citizenship because these are the two main issues they are doing so since uh, uh, some people have written 10 of the us senators have written to prime minister of bangladesh that immediate uh, threat of sending them back at somewhat delayed but now day before yesterday news came out there is an island which has emerged just few years ago uh, 35 miles from bangladesh and uh, it is still uh, six months of the year under sea but after six months it comes up again they are building uh, doing construction there to send about 100000 rohingyas over there very inhuman a And place where nobody lives yeah that sounds th- submerged in water six months of the year uh this is kind of uh incredible that they would put i mean obviously australia has put people on islands uh, that that they don't want in their country other places you know we have um, we have a place in cuba where we don't want people uh in our country uh but the uh, yeah a hundred thousand people on an island that doesn't exist and and is gets flooded all the time that sounds like a, a disaster waiting to happen oh it is a disaster but uh, unfortunately uh, you know i have some sympathy for bangladesh also because it's a it's a half of the us population uh, thrown in a size of iowa so it is i understand difficulties they have uh but i think world need to support bangladesh more so to find better solution for these people i mean rohingya people are very innovative people i mean since they have faced difficulties their citizenship was taken away so they cannot have a job they cannot have anything even to the extent i was talking to a leader of a village in his village there's you know no electricity except there are some burmese they provide government provides them electricity doesn't provide to them so what rohingya will do they have mastered uh, the art of uh, solar panels so these are just two by two solar panels which provide some electricity and charge their cell phones so they are very hard working innovative people who have been denied education and job i think if world pays attention to them they can turn into an economic machine by themselves and sending them back to genocide zone of burma it's absolutely not acceptable actually burmese have proudly shown the area where they will be keeping these people back when they are forced back in bangladesh which are being funded by japan and india and these are barbed wire after barbed wire they are more secure than nazi concentration camps yeah they, they, they would be sending people refugees back to home and home would be a concentration camp 
that's what they are saying. And they are showing it off that this is where they will be keeping them. And from 2012, 150,000 Rohingyas are kept in these type of camps since 2012. And New York Times have called it, uh, you know, the concentration camp of 21st century. Those people are still stuck there. And now they want this one million people to go back in that way instead of going back to their homes, their own farms, and their own ancestral land. So it is critical, those listeners who care for humanity, it doesn't take more than a minute. Pick up your phone and call your senators and your congressperson and ask them uh, for security and citizenship of these indigenous people who are being threatened because of their dark skin color, they use the, uh, some word similar to end towards them, and because of their faith. When you go to Washington tomorrow and talk with Congress people, how many of them do you think will be up to date on this issue? Well, difficult to assess, but definitely the Foreign Relations Committee members and these people know what is going on, and most of the Foreign Relations Committee people have their staffer who masters these things. But also, they will have some knowledge, because there was in last year a House Resolution 90, which was passed, and uh, in 2015, uh, another House resolution was passed. So these issues have been on their horizon. Uh, they are not completely uh, away. But, you know, in a world we live in, uh, every tweet is a big storm uh, in our country. And now we're facing a, a great movement by youth uh, from Florida who wants to change the country in some major ways. So while I su- I'm supportive of that, I hope all those activists find some time to stand up with people who are far away from our land but facing a genocide. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your your website, Burma Action Task Force? Yeah, Burma Task Force has a website called what else but burmataskforce.com or .org. All right, and people can go there and get more information about what's happening to, uh, tomorrow. And, uh, and well, uh, I'm uh, good luck. I hope you have a have a good trip to Washington. I hope you talk to a lot of receptive Congress people. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're doing a great job. Look forward to talking to you again. Take care, Malik. Bye. Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid is the chair of the Burma Task Force, and uh, their advocacy day for the Rohingya is tomorrow in Washington, D.C. The end is near for the plastic straw. We're going to talk about a documentary on the movement to stop plastic straws. It's part of the One Earth Film Festival, and we'll find out about that after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
The One Earth Film Festival bills itself as the Midwest's premier environmental film fest, and the fest this year is going to showcase dozens of films in 43 Chicago-area locations. It runs from March 2nd to the 11th, and festival founder Ana Garcia Doyle is here with me to preview some of the offerings. It's great to see you. Great. Thanks, Jerome, for having us on today. Uh, Tell people who've never heard of the One Earth Film Festival what it is, how it started, and how how you came to sprawl across the greater tri-state area here. Okay. So what it is, it's a a behemoth, uh, (laughs) as my teams would tell me right now, but it's a a fabulous um, opportunity to come together around issues of sustainability, resilient community, and climate change all throughout Chicagoland and beyond. We are in um, five counties. So Chicagoland and uh, four counties that uh, kind of touch Cook. Um, It is not an entertainment festival, even though it can be entertaining. It's an education and action festival. So we utilize film as a tool to spark awareness and action. And this started in Oak Park and River Forest with green community um, connections that your group that's right, right. Our nonprofit is called Green Community Connections. It's focused on building resilient community. And we started this in 2012. So we're going into our lucky seven year this year. Um, now, you've got so many films and your uh, your Green Carpet Gala is coming up here on Friday night and it's at the 4th Presbyterian Church and you've got a particular filmmaker coming to speak. Yes, we do. We're very excited. So we have a brief program, but we also will have plenty of eating and drinking and mingling. Uh, in our brief program, we'll be welcoming um, a producer of a film called Fly by Light. His name is Hawa Kasat, and he'll be joining us from Washington, D.C. to share about his film and to talk a little bit about some of the themes which include environment, justice, and equity. So his film has a group of uh, Washington, D.C. teens going in a bus to the mountains of West Virginia for eight days and, um, and finding out about uh, nature and things. Uh, how does, uh, where are you taking this film? Uh, so this film presses on some things that we've been working on over the last year and a half, I'd say. So sort of environmental justice, uh, issues of equity, and all of the intersections of climate change and sustainability. And um, it's a great film. It's a fun film featuring youth, but it's also quite serious. It talks a lot about um, uh, how sometimes we have to go outward to go inward. And it really, um, we see the youth hiking and we see them bathing in streams and we see a lot of inner work happening as well. And so you're taking that to the Austin um, Chicago Public Library there? That's right. We'll be at the Chicago Public Library Austin uh, branch on Race uh, Street uh, on Saturday the 3rd. And Hawa will be not just at our gala, but also uh, for post-film Q&A at that event. And I really encourage everybody to come. It'll be really engaging. All right. That film's Fly by Light, and it's going to screen at uh, 12 o'clock on Saturday, March 3rd. Yes. I should mention that it's also in Englewood at St. Benedict the African East Church later in the week. That's terrific. I mean, why did you take this action and bring um, these kind of films to Englewood to Austin? So our film festival, I think, you know, it's not a surprise to any of us that maybe are uh, here that the uh, environmental movement is accused of not being so diverse. And yet we believe that this is not an issue for greenies or people who consider themselves a certain type of person, but it's a human issue. And we need to be working in community with community uh, together uh, to solve some of these uh, challenges. So... I'm talking with Anna Garcia Doyle, founder of the One Earth Film Festival. We're talking about the 43 films that are going to be showing over uh, basically uh, 10 days here. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to talk straws because there's, uh, there's a terrific movement going on about plastic straws. 
And you've got a film that shows kind of the kickstarting of the movement. It's uh, called Straws, and it is screening uh, several times, including uh, March 3rd and March 10th in Grays Lake and River Forest, and then in Park Ridge again on uh, March 10th. And we have the filmmaker with us. Uh, She's Linda Booker, and she's on the phone with us. Nice to meet you, Linda Booker. Hi, thank you very much for having me on your show today. I I imagine there's some listeners who don't know about the movement on plastic straws, uh, but your film documents uh, kind of something that was welling up and just people did something about. Yes. You know, when I started the film production, um, the idea came to me in April 2015, and at that time, there really wasn't a lot of conversation around the issue of single-use plastic straws. Um, I did my research, and I found Jackie Munez, who is in the film, and she founded The Last Plastic Straw out in Santa Cruz, California, back in 2011. And really, before her, there was maybe only one or two I would say community activists that had kind of jumped on this topic and, you know, got some some attention from that. But it's been incredible to see since then how much traction this issue has received around the world. And I do mean globally. I mean, this was thing straws was being talked about at the United Nations Environmental Assembly in Nairobi um, this past fall, and it's being talked about in the Scottish Parliament. And it's incredible. And I think a big part of that was that there was a viral video that went on the internet in August of 2015 after even we after we started this film. But that was really a catalyst to capture people's attention about how something as simple as a plastic straw can hurt a marine animal like a turtle. And you've got, uh, you talk to the people who pulled a straw out of the nose of a turtle uh, in the film, and you've got the footage of it and everything, and you talk about the implications of that. We do. Uh, And it's a story that, like I said, it had a tremendous impact and was moved a lot of people to talk about straws to restaurants or to take their own individual action and then go further, even create campaigns, which is actually happening um, even in the Chicago area starting this week uh, to eliminate uh, the the use of straws in restaurants, mainly about just handing them out without being requested. And then the next level may, you know, perhaps going to a sustainable alternative. I do want to let people know that um, the film goes away. Yes, we do have that segment about the turtle and we were honored to be able to meet the marine biologist that rescued the turtle, and there's a happy ending. Uh, one of the things, though, is we don't we try not to, uh, you know, show that there's a lot of tough footage to watch when it comes to animals eating plastic. But we also talk a lot about the hope and the solutions and the possibilities. And you know, I'd like to think that this film is 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 a positive um, call to action for this topic. You know, we've got a clip from the film. It's one of your. Uh, one of the young people who has been called to action and decided to do something, and he describes uh, how he really feels like, um, you know, he why he joined, basically. Well, I realize it's more about community actions. It, like, I can't do this all by myself. So that's why I created the No Straw Challenge, so people would go out and ask restaurants to stop serving straws. Because it's not like I'm going to get to every restaurant in Costa Rica and tell them all to take this no-straw challenge. I need help. It's one of the activists in the film Straws, which is at the One Earth Film Festival. 
And young people really have taken the lead in organizations, museums. The, the Shed Aquarium here has a Shed the Straw initiative where they've gotten restaurants to sign up and say no straws. And just uh, how far this has gone in California is pretty remarkable. I'm, I was surprised to see that there's legislation and everything is moving forward in California. Yes, that's really become the epicenter, I would say, for the um, policy making around single-use straws, as well as other restaurant takeoutware that's made of single-use plastic. I think Manhattan Beach is one of the leaders in that, and then Santa Cruz County came along and has done um, some great policy work around that. Now we do have something being introduced at the state level, and unfortunately, I think there was a lot of media around um, that um, that particular piece of legislation that's been introduced, and that it would cause jail time and thousand dollar fines for servers. Um, that's since been clarified that that bill would not do that. But I think what it says is that people are getting serious, and they are taking it seriously. I mean, yes, maybe it seems silly to be talking about plastic straws, but what we're really talking about is a much more serious and larger issue about how much plastic is going into our oceans and is and not only in our oceans but just in our own environment we know that plastic in the streets is you know it's a it's not a great thing to have i mean you don't want plastic litter on your shores of your lake there in chicago because this is not something that people want to be around when they're having a a, a, a family picnic or a wedding or, you know, s- celebrating life and in be- the beauty of nature. So I think people are starting to notice it much more in our environment because it's right under our feet almost everywhere you go now. So, and again, this goes to the larger issue of how much plastics is infiltrating even our own water. Um, you know, there is research coming out every week that is pointing to microplastics in drinking water in deep sea levels. And so this is something that we really need to talk about. Linda, this is Anna. We're really excited to have your film in our festival this year. And uh, so many of our selection committee, everybody's been really activated around it as well. We can't wait to bring it to audiences. Um, what's your take in terms of, you know, how the, what the reception has been in different parts of the country as you've shown this festival and what you might be expecting as you come and join us in Chicago? It's been incredible. And, you know, one of our great screenings was in Malibu, where they actually did just pass a no-straw policy that will be start this summer. That was a great example of when I think the city um, council came together with nonprofit groups in that area and then joining in with, like, the Plastic Pollution Coalition and, and getting, you know, a sellout event of almost 300 people to to get together in a room and talk about, okay, now this has happened, what next? What are these conversations going to do to actually change this issue? We had another great event like that in Durham, North Carolina, and we tend to unfortunately think, you know, I'm a little sad that, you know, we repealed the, the plastic ban, uh, plastic bag ban on the Outer Banks. But to see, it, it's kind of nourished my hope again to see the city of Durham now get on board with a no straw campaign and the mayor do a proclamation for a no plastic straw month here. Um, greatest conversations I've had have come out of um, documentary film festivals in Ohio and uh, Arkansas. I think that is also an area that we've got to think about. It's not just the coastal cities. It's everywhere. 80% of plastic pollution comes from inland sources. Hmm. Uh, and your film, it's not, um, you know, uh, really mean towards never using a straw again. Pe- there are alternatives to plastic straws. There's uh, cardboard straws and uh, stainless steel, and you kind of walk through those. 
Yes, we certainly do not want to be in any way disrespectful to the needs of people that do need to use straws. Um, This is not an anti-straw film. Uh, We understand that handicapped, the elderly, children, heck, when you're in their car with a, you know, going through the drive-thru, you know, a straw is pretty darn handy to have. Um, You don't want to spill on your your suit or your, you know. But what we do offer is that alternative um, kind of straw that you could use, which would be paper, like you said, cardboard or steel or glass. And there's beautiful bamboo straws being made. That's when you heard Max speaking. That's what he and his school were doing. They were making bamboo straws to hand out to the restaurants in Costa Rica as an alternative. And what better alternative? I mean, it's right there. It's such it's a local resource that they could take and reuse for that purpose. So we do just, and, and that's the thing is we we want people to just think about single plastic use in general. About do I a do I really need that or if. Is there something else I could use to replace that? Or if I'm going to use it, how can I repurpose it or reuse it again or recycle it, of course? I'm talking with Linda Booker. She's director and producer of the film Straws, showing at the One Earth Film Festival. Anna Garcia Doyle is one of the founders of the One Earth Film Festival. And you've got an... uh, one of the hallmarks of your festival is you don't just show the film. You talk about things and talk about getting things done, and Straws offers you an opportunity to do that. And it sounds like you're going to have a go at that at the Thatcher Woods Pavilion on Saturday, March 10th. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what a great place to be in the Forest Preserve District as we're watching a film like Straws and really embedded in our you know urban nature, if you will, here right here real close to the city. Um, so yeah, we have definitely a ton of actions. And that's one of the things, you know, if you open up our program guide this year, you'll see uh, 15 things you can do. And that really is what our model is pitched on, is really making people feel empowered, inspired by the stories like in Linda's film, uh, to really get moving on some of these things um, so that collectively we're able to make a, an impact. So you're going to have people from the Sierra Club water team there, the Little Bits Workshop, uh, a beach chair scientist, and uh, the River Forest Sustainability Commission. So yes. all sorts of people. Yes, that's the exact kind of thing. So, for example, also after chasing coral, for example, at the Chicago Cultural Center, you'll be hearing from George Parsons, who's the coral expert at the shed, and um, uh, also um, from Kate Barnes, who is also a coral and reef expert at MacArthur Foundation. So we're just trying to put people in dialogue with folks they'd actually really want to hear from and, and, and ask questions of after our films and then take action. And Linda Booker is going to be at the Prairie Crossing showing of Straws on Saturday, March 3rd at 2 p.m. That's correct. And uh, yeah. yeah, well, we look forward to having you here, uh, Linda. Thanks for making this film. Well, thank you. And I'm really look forward to returning to Chicago. I've had some wonderful events there with other films, and it's a great city. I can't wait to get back there. Linda Booker, the uh, filmmaker of Straws, that's showing at the One Earth Film Festival. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk about a couple other things at the festival with you, Anna Garcia Doyle. I am impressed by your International Women's Day selections. You've got a strong lineup there. Oh, we are so excited. So as we know, International Women's Day is March 8th. It falls right in the middle of our festival week. And so we took the opportunity to extend the celebrations for International Women's Day throughout the entire week. And so we have two screenings of the film Jane, about Jane Goodall, a beautiful, acclaimed film uh, with uh, never-before-seen footage from the National Geographic Archives. I I had a chance to see that, and it was really terrific and extremely satisfying. Uh, She talks about her early days, shows all that early footage. 
and then it brings her up to date and, and tells you why she did what she did and became this advocate for, for peace and the environment and all the rest. Yeah, yeah. We're very excited to bring it to audience. It's a really sort of an intimate portrayal of, of who she was. We're also showing uh, in three screenings Dolores about Dolores Huerta, the founder of the Farm Workers' Rights Movement together with Cesar Chavez. And uh, we will have Dolores Huerta's son in two places coming to give a welcome from the Huerta family and talk a little bit about his experience growing up with her. Uh, and then we uh, have something 100 years, uh, by w- including a story of Eloise Cobell from the Blackfoot Indian Tribe on uh, land rights issues. And then the last film is uh, Unfractured. Join us to hear about Sandra Steingraber's story of um, trying to impose a uh, statewide uh, ban on fracking in New York State. I had her several times on the program talking about fracking, and uh, New York State is a place that does not have fracking now, largely because of the movement uh, she helped create. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and that's really what this is all about, that we really can change things if we can come together and make it happen. Uh, I wanted to mention another film, Wasted, the story of food waste, as, as long as we're talking in the theme of waste here with straws. Uh, you're showing that a bunch of times. It's already sold out at the Loyola uh, event. Uh, but that sounds like a really interesting film. Yeah, it's a great film. Not all the films that we show have this kind of humor and edge, and I'll just warn you parents out there, a little bit of language, um, but it's a great film featuring chefs, uh, but also folks working on hunger issues and folks working on composting and closed-loop uh, systems. So all the angles, really, of the food waste problem that we deal with in America, and I think uh, folks will feel, uh, or in the world, really, folks will feel that this is really an enlightening story and, and humorous at, at point. At points too. Well, I hope a lot of people get out and enjoy the One Earth Film Festival. It starts March 2nd and runs until March 11th. The Green Carpet Gala is on Friday at the Fourth Presbyterian Church at Michigan Avenue, and uh, people can check it out. The festival has so many offerings, and we've just really touched the tip of the iceberg, and the website is oneearthfilmfest.org, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct, yeah. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Anna Garcia-Doyle, and thanks for bringing this festival to the community and encouraging community involvement in the environment. Thanks so much. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about migration. What does migration say about a country's ability to absorb newcomers into society? Uh, we will take a look at how African nations um, are being, African nations and African people are being treated in China and have some thoughts on that tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Lee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. And thanks to Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.